The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I will be the host for today's episode. Today we have an interview, which I'm very excited about, and I'll tell you about that in just a few minutes. But I also want to remind you to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And also go to YouTube and find us on YouTube because we are putting out a message of hope and help. And it is our mission in life to inspire people to get help if they know someone who is addicted or if they themselves are addicted. There are solutions that will work. The same solution might not work for everybody, but the point is you have to reach out and you have to try and you need to do it now. So when you subscribe on either YouTube or where you listen to podcasts, you help us grow and you help more and more people find out about our messages and the people we talk to. So today we're going to be talking to an author named James Brown. He is a husband, former addict, father, skeptic, now 60 with years of sobriety under his belt and the father of three sons. He's the author of the critically acclaimed memoirs, Apology to the Young Addict, The Los Angeles Diaries, and This River. He is the recipient of a National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellowship and the Nelson Algren Literary Award in Short Fiction. Brown's work has appeared in GQ, The New York Times Magazine, Los Angeles Times Magazine, Plowshares, New England Review, and many other publications. His message, like ours, is that you can change and that there is hope. Without further ado, let's talk to James Brown. James, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate you being willing to share your story with us. And I know that every time we have a story such as yours that people listen and they hear something about it that maybe they can relate to. And the hope is that if it's the loved one of an addict that they will reach out for help, or if it's the addict themselves that they will reach out for help for themselves. So start off by telling me uh, how you got started with drugs or alcohol. It started back in childhood, actually. Um, uh, I began using, well, my first drug was marijuana and that came at the age of nine. And then I began to drink, I think it was 12 was when I had my first drink. And then I experimented with other substances, whatever was available. And that included heroin by the age of 14. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Got an early start. Yeah. Who, um, who introduced you to marijuana? when you were younger you know I, I i don't like to admit it but it was my brother um, okay. and he was older than me he didn't see any harm uh, in marijuana and i think he was only 16 or 17 at the time he had actually moved out early um, and he had had his own apartment um, he had begun to work as an actor and, and made enough money to be able to move out when he was 17 and um went over to visit him one time and he had the marijuana and that was back in the day when oh, it, marijuana, marijuana wasn't nearly as powerful as it is today. And uh, that's, that was my first introduction to marijuana. Wow. Yeah. The marijuana of those days is definitely not the marijuana of today. 
No, no, absolutely not. Today's stuff is very strong. <laughs> exactly. And then how did you transition to heroin? How did that start? That, it takes me back into an, uh, another part of my life that probably is, well, not probably, it's regrettable. I became, I, my, I, I grew up with a single mother um, in Los Angeles, and she had a criminal background. When she was released from prison, original charges were ar arson and homicide. They were reduced tax evasion, ultimately. And uh, when we moved to Los Angeles, uh, when she got out of prison, she uh, took my brother, sister, and I to Los Angeles. And uh, she had to work a lot. Uh, she was working, and um, my brother had his life, my sister had her life, so I was pretty much on my own. And at an early age, I was around the parks of Los Angeles, and I grew up with a lot of other, there were many, many other kids in my apartment complex and in the neighborhood came from single parent families. And so we hung out together in the parks. And it was in the parks that I uh, became a petty criminal, um, mostly burglary, um, some strong arm with uh, what we call a crew of young men at that time. I was the youngest of the group. And um, it was at that point there that other drugs got introduced into my, my life. I got it. So you're 14 and you're presumably in high school. Um, is your dad still, was your dad still in the picture or? It's a little confusing because at the age of, <coughs> excuse me, at the age of, I believe it was 13, I left Los Angeles to, I got in some trouble there in LA and my brother and I and uh, uh, my sister was against the idea, but in any event, I returned to, to went and live with my father. And I continued along my destructive ways for quite a few years. But uh, I think it was a time that I spent with my father that made a big difference in, in uh, why I'm here and my brother and sister are not. Uh, my father's a more stable person. Um, he introduced me to work. Uh, he was a building contractor. And so um, I didn't have as much free time to do the things I ordinarily would have done. And um, I learned that there was honor in work, that there was other ways to make, min make money rather than robbing and stealing. Got it. Where was your dad living at the time? Um, it was in San Jose, California. Okay. Okay. So away from the interestingness of Los Angeles, I should say. <laughs> I shall put it mildly. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so did you did you go to school while you were with your dad in San Jose? Did you continue yes. your high school up there? I continued my high school, and uh, one of the things about my academic career is that uh, I think I went to twelve or thirteen different schools before I actually got to my sophomore year in high school when my dad located to a, to a house um, on a, a quote unquote nicer part of town. And uh, there I was able to go through my sophomore, junior, and senior year of one school. But that was the first time in my life where I'd ever got to go to school for longer than one year. Wow. I mean, I was an, I'm an ex-military brat, so I moved around, but it was every three or four years. I didn't go <laughs> to different schools every year. That's, that's kind of hard because you have to get a whole new circle of friends and... You know, you become sort of like, I don't mean like a non-entity, but I mean, you become like the new kid. And every time you move, you become the new kid. That's right. 
Right. So your your brother and your sister, they stayed with your mom. They stayed with my mother. And my brother, uh, his drinking began early. Uh, he was he was extremely bright. He had an IQ of 170, um, wow. the Stanford Binet test, which is 30 points above genius. Wow. And I believe there's only 50,000 people in the world usually that qualify for that, you know, that distinction. He was an exceedingly smart young man. He modeled himself after Robert, uh, John F. Kennedy. And John F. Kennedy read 300 books a year purportedly. And so my brother, that's what he attempted to do. And he was successful. Um, very smart young man. But uh, socially, um, he had issues. Very, very shy. Even though he was an actor. Oddly, you think a lot of actors are extro extroverts, but not necessarily so. With drinking, he was able to socialize. He was mm -hmm. able to uh, feel better about himself because deep down he had a lot of insecurities. Even though he became a successful actor at an early age, he still was insecure. And um, it was a drink, his drinking that took off early, 1718, I believe. And uh, I always thought that alcoholics um, were the people that we saw in Skid Row. Um, I never imagined that by the age of 27 um, that you could become a diehard um, alcoholic. He had reached a point where he was drinking about a quart of vodka a day. And wow. his face, he was a very handsome young man. Uh, the movies he starred in, by the way, I digress for a second, was um, the two movies that were notable was uh, Bad Company with Jeff Bridges and that was a Stanley Jaffe production, Paramount. And then he also starred in Daisy Miller with Sybil Shepherd, and that was a Peter Bogdanovich film. Wow. Um, but by the time he was 27, he um, couldn't, he couldn't continue to, to drink and live and he couldn't live and continue to drink and became a bit in deep despair and, um, uh, yeah, he, he put a, a 38 in his mouth and that was, uh, you know, he just decided to, to check out early. Oh, that's so tragic. I'm, I'm sorry. It, that's why we do this and why you do what you do so that maybe someone listening who knows an alcoholic can take action before it gets to that point. And he was, he was several years older than you. How about your sister? Was she older as well or younger? She was a few years older than me as well. And uh, she was an aspiring actress. Again, she was very, she was a very good actress um, or actor. And she, um, but she was also extremely shy. And alcohol did for her what it did for my brother, what it did for me as well. Um, and uh, she, uh, she also liked her cocaine and became a cocaine addict as, as well as an alcoholic. And she eventually um, took the same path that my brother did. And that was her choice was to jump over the overpass into that thing called the con that thing called Los Angeles river, which is essentially just a concrete channel. Right. So, I'm sorry. How old was she when she took her own life? I think she was touching 40 okay. at that time there. So she made it, she lived longer than my brother, but she was haunted by, she loved my brother very much. And, she never fully recovered from his suicide. I got it. Is your is your mother still alive? Uh, my mother, no. She's passed on a few years back. And oh. uh, it felt to me, I hadn't spoken with her for many, many years until my sister's suicide. 
And after my sister took her life, then my mother and I reopened relationships. And towards the last part of her life, after she lost her husband, it, uh, it behooved me to, to look after her. So we did spend a few years together, um, and became closer than we ever had before in her last few years. That's good. I'm glad, to, I'm glad that you could reconcile with her. Is your dad still around? No, he passed on when I was, I believe, uh, geez, I think it was 25. And I loved him deeply. And I really only had a chance to know him from the ages of, I, I think we go back to 14 until 25. So I had about nine years with him, uh, get a chance to know him. Although I too moved out of the house at 17. Um, um, and so I didn't have the, wasn't able to spend as much time with him as I would like to. Right. Were you st when you were living with your dad, you mentioned that you learned kind of work ethic and, um, you know, the value in doing a good job. Were you still, were you continuing to do drugs when you were living with your dad? Yes. Um, my, 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 it was, I guess you would call it recreational use. Um, I was just an addict waiting to happen, however. Um, right. uh, but I used recreation. I was able to live a double life for most of my life using and abusing drugs. Um, you know, the, to be frank with you, there are some people, I think, that can experiment with drugs and they pass through the fires unscathed. Mm -hmm. But there's a group of us, and I don't know what the statistic is or how you would even get a statistic. I've heard 10, 20% of us who do begin to experiment with drugs, it will become a way of life, um, a lifestyle and, and a, a perversion of our lives. Right, I don't know. I've never researched what the exact numbers are, but I kind of believe in my heart of hearts that the number of people who, the percentage of people who become addicted versus the people who can manage their addiction and be function, what we call functioning addicts, I'm gonna think that the percentage is quite a bit higher because so many of these drugs, they 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 chemically affect the body. So there's, you know, there's mental or spiritual addiction, but then there's physical addiction, and I I don't I don't know that you can manage that so much. Anyway, I don't know the numbers. I'm just kind of yeah. talking out of my hat, but I think I I think I think it's more people that get addicted than don't, and that's why we have a problem today. I think you're smart in saying the number would be higher because to say otherwise might be encouraging people to think, oh, I can be one of those that's going to escape this. Um, yeah. When you don't know, you really don't know what your personality type is and, 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 and what your psyche is and what past traumas you might have had, how all those play into um, taking us, allowing the drug to take us. So it's better to err on the side of higher than lower. I think you're right. Exactly. And the, the other thing that I, I, I think that sometimes people don't take into account, definitely not young people when they decide they're going to experiment with drugs, and that is that long-term term usage of drugs, whether you are a full-blown addict and, you know, or whether you are quote-unquote managing your addiction and maybe you're not doing it every day, maybe you're just doing it on the weekend, but long-term use of drugs and alcohol has very detrimental effects on the body. And so it's one thing to say, oh, I'm a functioning addict with my cocaine and I'm only doing it a couple days a week. But after you've done that for 20 years, <laughs> you're taking a toll on the body because drugs are poison basically. And 
you know, a little bit of it can make you high. A lot of it can put you to sleep and too much of it can kill you. But, you know, I just, I think, I think, I think if someone thinks that they are managing their addiction to some degree, they're fooling themselves and not taking into account the long term. But um, I digress. I digress from your story. <laughs> no, no, but you're making a good point uh, about that. And that's what, you know, the, one of the nuances of that point that you're raising is denial and that people think they're quote unquote functioning. And that's one of the things that keeps a lot of people from getting getting help sooner is they think they can manage it. You're right. Maybe on the surface, it appears that they can manage it or they convince themselves. But the fact is they're their lives are slowly, incrementally falling apart. Um, even the so-called functioning alcoholic, um, functioning drug addict, like you said, if there is such a thing. Um, and then you're right about the long-term effects on the body. Uh, my, my liver has been compromised and I have to pay special attention um, uh, to uh, you know what I ingest now. Um, if I were to continue, if I were to pick up drinking again, I could do myself... I could put, I may not have as many years to drink. Uh, should I survive my drinking? My own, my own body would tell me it's t- my time is up. Right. The, the other thing, and I'm just going to say this to the listeners is that if you were listening to this podcast and you think that you are um, either a functioning addict or you do drugs, you know, regularly, but you don't think you're addicted, my suggestion would be try stopping <laughs> and see if you can go. Uh, two or three weeks or a month without the drugs. And guess what? If you can't, you're addicted. Yes, right. I'm just going to put that out there. No, it's a good thing. Okay. So you, did you go to college? Yes, I did. Um, uh, I went to college. I got my bachelor's degree from San Francisco State. And it was on the, my father encouraged me to go to college. I was the first in my family to go to college. Although my brother and sister were exceedingly bright, uh, they chose not to take that route. Um, I did, however, go to college and studied creative writing, English literature um, at, like I said, Cal State San Bernardino. Then I went to work, went back to uh, work in the trades. My father was a B1 contractor, so he did it all from electrical work to plumbing to hanging drywall and I learned many many of those skills from my father so after I got uh, after I graduated with my bachelor's degree I went back to work in the trades um, <clears throat> working <clears throat> as an electrician and then um, after I did that for a few years I decided I wanted to go back uh, and get my advanced degree and I, so I got my MFA in uh, fiction writing from uh, <clears throat> UC Irvine Um, And believe it or not, I was still drinking regularly, doing drugs, so-called, quote-unquote, recreationally. And I hadn't yet uh, become fully, well, I guess we're going back to the whole notion of the so-called functioning addict. Um, It's a balancing act. But yes, I I was formally educated. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or 
call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, visit their website at narcononojai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. And you got married and had children. Yes. Did your drug use continue into your marriage and fatherhood? Sadly, yes, it did. And uh, I, if I could go back and, and grab some years, and uh, if I could have gotten into or should have gotten into recovery much sooner, I would have had better years with my children and my wife. Um, like so many alcoholics and addicts, uh, I destroyed my marriage. And I robbed my children of a good father for many, many years. It uh, wasn't that I didn't love them. I loved them dearly. Um, I would take a bullet for any one of my boys um, without hesitation. Uh, it's just that when, you're, when you are addicted, regardless of your best intentions and how, regardless of how deeply you might love, the drug comes first. Right. Right. And, so... I think you mentioned this um, a little bit about this in the interview I watched, but, you know, we call this podcast, um, the addiction podcast point of no return, because we like to hear from the former addict. When was your wake up call? When was that moment when you said either I'm going to get clean and sober or I'm going to die or go down that road? When, what was that moment for you? I think there were a couple of moments like that, maybe three or four. Um, but the one that the, stuck. The one that stuck is a very dark, dark story. And that was after I divorced um, uh, my first wife. And she was a very good woman. And uh, you know, God rest her soul, she passed about four years after we were married. Um, and she uh, had another, she was having another child with another man. And the baby survived, but she did not. Um, uh, you know, people get divorced. It doesn't mean they stop loving their wife or their husband, whoever it may be. So the, all the years we had together, the history, um, there was love there. Um, even though the last four or five years were, were hell because of my addiction, um, there was love there. Um, there were memories there. And when she passed, um, Again, I don't want to mislead um, the viewers or listeners out there to think that there's any excuse for a relapse. But in this case here, I'm 
going to rationalize like a good addict does and tell you that her death put me back over the edge. And it was at that time there that I was considering joining my brother and sister. I had something like a psychotic break and a nervous breakdown of some sort. Um, and I went out on a huge vendor you know, of methamphetamine and alcohol, um, resulted in um, me being transported by my second wife at that time. And she's, we're still married, happily married, um, uh, to the hospital. Uh, I, I leaped out of the car uh, while the car was moving. One of my sons was with me. He jumped out of the car as well. And we proceeded to make our way across the badlands of San Bernardino. I don't know if you much about San Bernardino, but it's a very rough town. I live in Lake Arrowhead uh, in San Bernardino, in San Bernardino County. And uh, arrived at a hotel, proceeded to drink. My son was with me. And the next day, um, well, to try and make the story shorter, uh, I, uh, my wife, performed an intervention and I ended up going to Loma Linda Behavioral Modification Center. And that was one of the major turning points in my getting sober was my first stint, first and only stint in um, rehab. I got it. And how old was your son when he was with you that night? Uh, he was just a pup. Uh, I would say he was about 14, 15. Um, okay. yeah. Have you ever talked to him about it? And well, let me take that back. He was 12 years old. Yes, uh, we did talk about it. And, uh, you know, I've been very, very fortunate in the sense that um, the, my boys um, have forgiven me. To, to, the, to the best of my knowledge, they've forgiven me. I've talked to them about it. I've, I've, tried, I've attempted to make amends. I have made amends. And, um, and I, the only way I could prove that I was serious was to maintain sobriety. Um, but Yes, I put my children, I, 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 the children, sadly enough, are, are some of the greatest casualties of the addict and the alcoholic. That's right. And uh, my children suffered, but uh, they, they have seen their father sobered for quite a few years now. Well, congratulations on that. How many years sober are you? Um, I'll have, I'm 12 years sober uh, from alcohol and about 17 from narcotics. Wow. That, very well done. I know that that's not the easiest thing in the world. So very well done to you. Thank you. So what made you then decide to write a book? Well, or I've been, yeah, well, I've written a, quite a few books and I started off as a novelist and uh, I, I've been wanting to be a writer for, for most of my life. Or, and it, it takes me back to the story of my brother. My brother saw what route I was going down, and he was an he was very um, he was a scholar, and so he introduced me to writing, and I loved him. I, I tried to please him, so I would write the stories, even though we were living far apart, four hundred miles away. He in Los Angeles, and myself in uh, San Jose, um, and I I was writing these little vignettes of sorts and sending it to him. And, and he would, of course, come back, even if they were terrible. He would, he would say they were, he would say they were, they were terrific. And <laughs> so that's brother. right. So I had a couple, I had my brother and a couple of teachers, good teachers that uh, they knew that I wasn't the best student, but they, they knew that I was interested in writing. And so they encouraged me. I made a big difference. And uh, I was able to focus on my, I was able to become a writer. 
That's awesome. I think um, I didn't ask you the right question. Um, You obviously have a background in writing, but I believe that you've written three books that are semi sort of autobiographical about your story. Yes, I have. So Uh, what led you to those, to writing those? uh, Sobriety is what led me to writing the first book, uh, The Los Angeles Diaries. And uh, that particular book, I decided I was going to, I was going to be honest and tell the truth. I wasn't going to hide behind my fiction anymore. I was going to write my own story. I had a friend of mine tell me, he said, Jim, uh, your personal life is far more interesting than anything you can make up. Why don't you just write the truth? And (laughs) well, um, the book uh, was well received uh, uh, critically. It didn't, didn't fly off the shelves and become a bestseller, but it's even today it's been out uh, almost 20 years, the book is still in print. It's been through eight printings. Uh, there's been two or three translations of the book and there's been 11 editions of the book. So, And it's been used in colleges and drug rehabs uh, programs, certification programs. Um, um, so I was very fortunate uh, that that book uh, was able to affect uh, um, some other people's lives, and particularly those with struggles like my own. Right. And then I had a follow-up book uh, called This River, and that one dealt, the first one, Los Angeles Diary, dealt more with my brother and sister and their suicides, my criminal mother, uh, our criminal mother. And then my next book, This River, dealt more with my immediate family and, again, with my active addiction. And uh, the book that's coming out called Apology to the Young Addict is the third one and the final one of this trilogy that deals with sobriety now that i've had a chance to be sober for you know a decade um slightly more than a decade um i'm able to see things more clearly in ways that i couldn't possibly uh see them if i wasn't sober for that length of time and so this one here is about um sponsoring people it's about uh the opioid crisis. It's about, uh, you know, staying recovered, uh, getting, re- getting clean and sober and then keeping clean and sober and the struggles because it's work. It's not as if you get clean and sober and get to stay that way and not have to worry about uh, it again. Uh, right. It's a, it's a process. That's right. And it's not, it's not easy. No, it's, I don't think it's easy for anybody really. No, it's the hardest thing that I've ever done wow. is to get clean sober. My life, I was, it was more normal for me to use and, and drink than it was for me not to. Right. Right. But your wife was obviously supportive because you're still together. Yes. She's, uh, she's been very, very helpful. And I, yeah, the addict has to make the choice to get clean and sober. That has to be wholly personal. But the support system of having a, a good wife um, in my corner uh, made a huge, huge difference. Um, I don't think I could have gotten sober without the love of my wife and, and the love of my three boys. It made a huge difference to me. That's awesome. You mentioned, again, I, I watched your CNN interview, you mentioned spirituality being a part of your recovery. Can you tell tell us a little bit more about what that means? Uh, well, that's a tough one. Spirituality is elusive, uh, and it means different things to different people. 
Well, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to be good? Good question. <laughs> yeah. um, what it means to me is, I needed to. I need to be forgiven. I have done too many things and harmed too many people, and there's stories that I can't share with you. Um, Understood. Uh, and uh, uh, I felt so bad about myself uh, that I needed um, a power um, that. Would, that would tell me that if I decided to stay clean and sober and decided to quit hurting people, that I would be forgiven. And I needed that. I also needed to be in conversation with uh, a God um, so that I could go up at night and I could pray to, to someone or something that I felt was listening and that cared. I also felt because I reached such, a, such, a, such depths of despair in darkness, um, that there was no meaning in this world for me. And I needed to believe that I was, that there's meaning in my life. And um, some people, more credit to them, they can find meaning in their life outside of spirituality. And I don't begrudge them that at all. Some of us may not have that luxury. And I had to find uh, a God, my understanding, as they call it, an AA, but. Um, and, and I needed to be in conversation, and I needed to be forgiven. Wow. I think that's huge. I think just that one minute there is just huge for people listening, because I, I can see how when you've gone down the road of addiction, you probably don't like yourself very much. So you have to find something to like. And I think, you know, looking for a higher power that you know, you can aspire to and will forgive you and won't judge you. I think, I think that's huge. And the other thing I think that's very important for anybody listening is this doesn't mean that you have to walk into a church. Um, you know, religion doesn't have a monopoly on God. No, it doesn't. It you know, doesn't. you, you can, you can be, you can be close to God and you can, you know, find some spiritual awareness of God without ever walking into a church. And I think that that, I think that's very important because I think, you know, this is not a religious podcast. So people listening are going to have their own, you know, their own different views and beliefs. And I, I really like that. That's, that's, that's a fabulous part of your story. I like oh, that James very well, much. Thank you. Thank you. So um, the way I like to end these interviews is, you know, we have possibly some addicts who listen. I know I got an email from one who is, um, considers himself a functioning addict. There may be people who are looking for hope, who have their own addiction. And we know we have friends and family of addicts who listen to the podcast. So if there was one message you could give these people, what would that message be? Yeah, you may have heard it before. Um, I can rephrase it uh, and tell you that when I was at the lowest point of my life when darkness and despair were all I knew and all I could phantom imagining. Um, and I'd had a brother that took his life and I had a sister who took her life. Um, and I lost my father at an early age. And I thought I lost a lot of people that I loved um, over the years. Um, that darkness, that despair um, could easily have consumed me. And I, I'm not sure exactly what pulled me away from it enough to be able to have just that, what they call moment of clarity. 
to say that, no, I don't want to take my life. No, I want to continue on. There's a part of me that wants to live. And that's that notion of, and then we, we call it, we can reduce it to the word hope. You, if you let go of that last strand of hope, then there won't be any more. And for me, thank God it was, I had a strand of hope to hang on to because I look at my life now and I think my boys, uh, my wife, uh, we, uh, I love them, they love me. I wouldn't be here for any of that had I lost that strand, uh, had I stopped caring. And so my message would be do not ever stop caring and do not ever buy into the lie that there isn't that that the darkness and despair is <clears throat> that you, you that you can't overcome it. Um, it you need to to believe in yourself that's great that's a fabulous message and i would the only thing i would add to it is you know if you're in that despair and darkness you need to reach out because yes. there are people who are willing to help you I'm going to um, tell you how to, to reach James on his website, which is jamesbrownauthor.com. And it's James, like you spell it, and brown, like the color, jamesbrownauthor.com. And your books are available on Amazon? Yes, they are. Okay, give yeah. me the titles one more time and tell me when the third one's coming out. Uh, the, uh, the third one, <clears throat> the... Apology to the Young Addict will be released in hardcover on March the 3rd with Counterpoint okay. Press. Okay. And then the other two uh, are still still in print and they're still available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, and uh, I, I guess it was a place called IndieBound. Um, that's another uh, online bookseller. Okay. And, then, and, it, and it's LA Diaries and The River? Yeah. It's This River, it's called. Oh, This River. LA yeah. Diaries and This River. Right. And you can show your book. You can oh, show can it. I? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is the one. Okay. That's uh, one coming out on March. 3rd. That's the one coming out. This is what they call it an ARC, advanced reader copy. And I'll awesome. have the hardcover shortly. And, awesome. Uh, this river. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm hold up right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just I have my camera right in front of my face. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Perfect. And then the Los Angeles Diaries. Perfect. Awesome. James, thank you so much for being willing to share your story on the podcast. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Every time we get a story and I know that, um, I say this every time, but I know that for every story we tell, it's going to resonate with somebody. Somebody's going to listen. Somebody is going to take that little piece of the story that they can work with and they're going to use it and they're going to get help and I just, I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for, for um, this interview. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. I don't know about you, but I thought that James's story is really quite something. And again, we just want to put out there that there is hope available. And you figure if someone who's had as much tragedy in his life as James has can get clean and sober and stay clean and sober, well, then the rest of you can. And if you don't think you can, then you should reach out. You should reach out for help. You can reach out to us as the podcast at the podcast. 
you have our phone number, but our email in case you didn't, in case you missed it is the addiction podcast at yahoo.com. You can reach out to us and if we can't help you, we'll find somebody that can. You can also reach out to our sponsor with no commitment. You can get help from them. This is what they do is they help people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol. That's Narconon Ojai and the number is 866-231-5924. Don't forget Please subscribe to our podcast and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Visit us on Facebook, and we will be back again next week to talk to you again. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.